you're listening to the Pomerado Christian Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for spending time with us today. If you're a weekly listener, welcome back. If this is your first time, we're so glad you're here and hope you consider subscribing. If you're in your car, on a run, doing things around the house, or working out, and want to connect even further and take next steps with us, visit pomerado.info. Now, enjoy this week's message. Well, good morning, everybody. So good to see all of you who are here with us, whether you're live with us in person, whether you're joining us live online, or maybe you're watching or listening later throughout the week. And know that wherever you may be and however you may be joining us, uh, if you learn nothing else, uh, we hope that you learn or, or reminded even of just how much God loves you. And hopefully you hear us say that you are prayed for, you are cared for, you and loved before you showed up this morning or before you turned on your screen whenever you're joining us. And so we hope that uh, you feel uh, God's presence, his encouragement, his love for you um, in this moment, wherever and however you're joining us. We are continuing, as Beth just mentioned, we are continuing our series called Masterpiece in Progress, in which we are looking at how God has shaped us and made us and molded us in order to be used for a purpose, in order to be serving in a way that most honors him, that we have a kingdom purpose, that for such a time as this, God has put us together here in this place. He's given you gifts, abilities, a heart, a passion in order to do certain things that God has put you here on this earth at this time for a certain purpose. And so as we've been spending the past several weeks unpacking what that looks like, we've been going through this with our small groups, um, and we've been unpacking this details, looking at these two different books. We looked at Purpose Driven Life, um, and we are, uh, I'm, my goal is to finish that uh, in my own quiet time. I remember, let's start it while we're going to the beginning of the series. It's a six-week series, so we're going to finish that this week. Um, and then we have a shape book that's written by Eric Reese that comes out of a couple of the chapters in Purpose Driven Life and unpacks and dives more deeply into the idea of how God has shaped you for service. Now, if you're with us for the very first time or you haven't been with us for a while, we always take a, a couple seconds to be able to unpack where we've been when it comes to the series. And so we are currently on week five in which we talked about how SHAPE as an acronym has been uh, the way that God has molded us. And so we have our spiritual gifts, your heart or your passion, the abilities God has given you. So those are abilities you've always had as opposed to spiritual gifts, which are things that we receive when we give our, our lives over to the Lord and how the Holy Spirit lives inside us and empowers us. Last week we talked about personality, and then this week we're looking at our experiences. And so we just hope that you know, again, uh, just how special you are, how precious you are, and that there is no one that is uniquely, or excuse me, there's no one that is exactly like you because you are uniquely, fearfully, and wonderfully made. And so there's no comparison needed. Instead of comparing or competing or complaining, we want to turn to God in gratitude of what he's doing and, and acknowledging that our service this morning, our sermon this morning, is going to talk about some things that are going to be more difficult for us. It's nice for us to talk about the spiritual gifts we have, or the heart that we have, or the abilities that we have, and even for the personality that God has wired us with. But today we're going to talk about experiences. And as we're talking about a series called Masterpiece in Progress, that means that God is continuing to mold, continuing to shape. And sometimes God has to break us and remake us in order to fulfill the purpose he has for us. So we're going we're gonna to unpack the story of Joseph through the uh, book of Genesis. We're going to look at the different ways of looking at our experiences. And before we do, I would ask that you would join me in a word of prayer as we get ready for what God has for each and every one of us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who's part of our service this today, Lord, whether live in person, live online, watching or listening later. 
Lord, I thank you for the fact that each person who hears my voice is someone, Lord, that you have created and shaped, that you breathe life into us, that you have purpose for us. Lord, that we have a hope that can anchor us in the midst of difficult times. In the midst of painful experiences, Lord, you are still there. May we be reminded of that this morning. I pray, Lord, as we dive into your word, that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us. Lord, we love you. And it's in your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be starting in chapter 37 of Genesis. And so if you want to follow along, if you brought your Bibles, awesome. If you have a Bible app, awesome. If you don't have either of those, that's awesome. That's totally fine because we've got Bibles in the seats in front of you or underneath you. And if you're joining online, you can click the Bible tab and we'll start in Genesis 37. But we're going to be jumping around quite a bit this morning. So what we're going to talk about today are our experiences. And Eric Reese in the book Shape talks about it this way. He says, experiences, if you're following along in your notes, we have uh, notes, sorry, I meant to mention that. We have fill in the blanks for our small groups and discussion questions. So if you're in a small group, I encourage you to follow along, to fill those out, to bring those to your group. And even if you're not, there's some questions underneath that maybe you can talk with a friend or a spouse or someone over the dinner table and just unpack some of these things together. All that to say, if you're following along in your notes, you want to fill things in. Experiences are those parts of your past, both positive and painful, which God intends to use in great ways. Different parts of our past, both positive, encouraging, uplifting, and painful, the ones that we'd rather hide, the ones we'd rather avoid, the ones we don't want to talk about, God can use the positive and the painful for great, in great ways to have a great impact on those around us. Now, if you remember recently, uh, we have been going through a... Uh, our middle school has been raising money for a project with North India Christian Mission. And part of that was a book that the different middle school students had filled out and talked about how God, um, different characteristics of God. And Karina Navarro shared this um, with her idea of God as a potter. And we're going to use this pottery clay dynamic throughout as this metaphor that scripture uses. We're going to unpack that together. We're going to look at how God molds and shapes us. And this is what Karina says. The verse here is that, yet you, Lord, are our father. We are, yeah, we are the clay. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hand from Isaiah 64, verse 8. Here's how Karina unpacks it. She says this, God is like a potter because the potter will take a piece of unmolded clay and mold and shape it into something new. The clay will yield into the hands of the maker. If the clay is not soft enough, it will not mold as easily. Then after being molded, the clay sits and waits until it is sturdy and strong enough to do whatever it was made for. God will shape and mold us. He has a plan for each of us. Our outcome after he shapes us can be surprising and different from what we ever could have expected. And that's a beautiful way to introduce the story of Joseph and introduce a way for us to look at our experiences. Connie Kenimer, a longtime church member, her and her husband Rex usually sit right here in the second service. Um, she wrote a book a while ago called A Heart That Sings that she wrote songs and then she wrote um, reflections on the different songs that she had um, penned before. And she talks about this process about God as the potter and us as the clay. And this is how she describes it. She says it this way. This process involves releasing, letting go, saying goodbye to certain dreams and relationships that must change with the turning of the seasons. Some of the transitions are natural and anticipated, others painfully abrupt and unexpected, but all reflect God's refining work. He turns the wheel and fires the clay vessel. He is the craftsman, the potter. 
When I was a freshman, I think it was in high school, I took a ceramic class because in my mind, I thought this would be easy. Um, and I'm like, oh, it's art and I'm horrible at art, but maybe I can, you know, do something. And so um, after all these years, this is the one piece that I kept, not because it's great, but because it's the only one that's still intact. And so um, here's like, if you've ever, has anyone here ever uh, used a pottery wheel before? All right, so this is something where um, I, again, I thought it was easy, but you have to, you, we had a foot pedal, the wheel was turning, you have to wet the clay, you slam it in the center, you try to get it center, which is really hard to do, because if your clay isn't quite in the center and it gets wobbly, then no matter what you try to do to mold it, it's always going to be a little bit off. So just throwing the clay and getting it in the right spot is hard enough. But then once you do that, you try to mold it and shape it. And what you try to do when you make a little pot like this is you try to make it go further down deeper and you pull up the sides. But for me, every time I did that, it would just collapse. And so I'm like, instead of a deeper base or a deeper inset and bigger walls, mine is very shallow and just kind of curves. I'm like, this is all that I could do. So this is really great to fill about... Um, like seven quarters maybe, like just it's not a lot, but it's something where I'm like, I wanna hold on to it because it's the one piece that I was able to make. And so before that, I think understanding God as the potter and us as the clay, it's this idea that God will mold and shape. If we're hard-hearted, there's times where he has to soften us. There's times where he has to take it. And Jeremiah 18 shares with us this idea that he says, Jeremiah, go to down to the potter's house. And as he does that, the potter is working with the clay. And then it, he talks about how the, the potter that is in that story, the clay starts to be ruined. It's spoiled. It won't work anymore. And so God has to use that as an example to say, Israel, you're, you're spoiled. You're not following my covenant. You're not living for me anymore. And don't I have the right to be able to take this again, reshape it, throw it down and start again? And so we talk about how that introduces the idea of the exiles and things like that. But here's what the point is, is that God knows the shape that he has for each and every one of us. And he knows the experiences that we will all have to go through, both positive and painful in order to be used the way he's made us to be used. That we experience and we recognize the fact that you might have gone through an incredibly difficult time when you were younger so that you could experience and withstand a more difficult storm when you're older. Recognizing that there's a story of how um, butterflies, if, if you try to help them get out of the chrysalis, outside of the cocoon, if you try to like help them get through and that way you're like, oh, I'm making it easier for them. They don't know how to fly. They don't know how to survive. Why? Because it was in the difficult process of the coming out of the chrysalis that they gain enough strength to face the world. Some of us, we want our experiences to only be positive. We say, God, why do you allow these hard things to happen? Why do I have painful experiences? It's because God wants you to grow. God wants to shape you. And God wants you to fly. Not that we are just stuck, but that we can experience the life he has for us. So let's take a look in our notes. We're going to look back at our experiences, and we're going to look at, I don't know if seasons is the right verbiage. I don't know if, if um, stages. You can maybe, maybe you can help me think through what the best way to look at this is, but when it comes to the process of clay and God being the potter, we're going to look at four different aspects of that, and we're going to use that through the scope of Joseph's life. And, and if you've not read the story of Joseph recently from Genesis chapter 37 to 50, 
I'm going to give um, like a 15,000 foot view. We're going we're gonna to stoop down. We're going to look at some details, but then we're going to gloss over a lot of it. It is so worth your time. If you feel like you're in a season where you just keep going through the blender or you keep going through the storm and you don't see the purpose beyond it, I encourage you to read these chapters in your devotional time throughout your day, whatever it looks like. But Genesis 37 through 50 paints a beautiful picture of what it looks like to go through painful experiences, but then to come through on the other side with an incredibly mature perspective and with a clear vision of purpose. So, Here's what we're going to start with. The first stage, if you will, is going to be called making, and it's being in the potter's hand. It's recognizing that we are being molded and shaped constantly. And so in this season of making, it's recognizing that we're the clay. God can mold and shape us however we want, but there are times when he makes us and it's great, and there's times when he needs to remake us and reshape us. So we're in the potter's hand. The sub-point underneath this said this. When we look at our positive experiences— we can see how God grants favor and calling. Maybe you look and you see when someone has affirmed in you an ability that you have, and you're like, oh, Lord, you have showed me that you've given me ability to do this. May I use that for you? Maybe it's the idea of of a calling where it says, I want you to do this, and you've experienced that inward calling and then the outward affirmation from others. You say, God, I have a clear idea of what you want for my life. Not that it's gonna be perfect to get from point A to point B, but that I know where you're calling me. Maybe for some of you, it's just being known that you are loved by God. No matter what your family of origin story looks like, no matter whether you grew up in a lovely Christian, God-fearing home, whether you grew up in a home that was anything but, that you are deeply loved and just feeling that favor, that unmerited favor, being loved by God regardless of your backstory is enough to help us to know that he is molding and shaping us. And we can trust that molding and shaping. Why? Because we know he loves us. He doesn't do it out of harm. He doesn't do it just to be a bully. He does it because he loves us enough to know what's needed to be done for our, in our lives and to work through us. So we're going to start here in chapter, or Genesis chapter 37. Now, the background of the story is um, we see that Jacob had... Uh, Two wives, two concubines. Now she has, he has 12 different sons. Joseph is the oldest son of his favorite wife, which is just a messy family dynamic. If you think your family of origin is tough, just think about all the different details and issues that come when you have two wives, two concubines, 12 kids, not including the daughters. Like it's, it's, it's a mess. And yet Joseph was the 11th born, but he was the firstborn of the favored wife, Rachel. So he was the one that all these other sons are older, except for Benjamin, but all of them are older, and yet they know that Jacob, the dad, loves Joseph most. Now, please don't, this is not a show of hands, but if you have siblings, you often can feel sometimes that you're either the one who's loved more or the one who's not loved more. You compare yourself to your sibling and creates rivalry, but the rivalry that we may have hopefully and prayerfully, is nothing compared to what we see here in the story of Joseph. So as we jump in here in chapter 37, we, we get introduced to Joseph. And this is what we says. We go, to, go ahead and go to the scripture, starting in verse 4. It says, Now Israel, which is another word for Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel after wrestling with the Lord in uh, Genesis a couple chapters before, 32, I believe. 
He says this, Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. Some say this is the Technicolor robe, the Technicolor dream coat, if you've seen that. So it's, it's something that was so clearly displaying the favor, and which is the positive side, the favor, but the negative side is the favoritism of Joseph in the midst of his brothers. They made, he made an ornate robe for him. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. And so we're saying, so think about how Joseph was shaped early in his life. He recognizes he's the favorite son. He's the second to youngest for most of his life. And, and he starts to think, you ever have, again, I don't need a show of hands, but have you ever been having a, a younger sibling and they're the ones that always find a way to get you into trouble. And so it's like, they, they do something bad. They're like, well, he's the one that, you know, let me do it. Or she's the one that started it. And you're like, why are you getting me in trouble? See, I was the youngest child and I was like, perfect. So like, it really doesn't apply to me. And I'm just kidding, totally kidding. But this idea of acknowledging that sometimes these sibling dynamics. And so he was molded and saying, you are the beloved one of your father. He loves you so much. He, he to his discredit, Jacob puts an, over amount of love to Joseph, which one, creates bitterness with his brothers, and two, creates a, a, a decent degree of pride that comes when you think, oh, I'm the one that has it all together. I'm the one that has loved. I'm the one that could do no wrong. I'm the one who's perfect. Now, there's a beauty in being beloved by the Father, but there's a way to receive that with humility and not with pride, right? So here's what we do here. We recognize that Jacob puts Joseph out there, makes him the favorite son. But he needed, Joseph needed to go into a season because he starts sharing these dreams that he has that we see end up coming to fruition. But he says, I had a dream that, that all of you would bow down to me. And then he has another dream that includes the, his, uh, it's the, all the stars and the sun and the moon. And he says, all of you will bow down to me. And this is where Jacob, the dad who realizes how much that he loves his son, but how that might make things difficult, he responds in this and starting in verse 10. He says, when he, Joseph, told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So, again, we, we know the end of the story. And this is something where it, it's fascinating. What, picture whatever your favorite book is, or whatever your favorite movie is, whatever your favorite, your fictional story is. And imagine those different times where, wouldn't it have been amazing if you were in that book to know what the author was thinking while writing it? Because you might be in the midst of tr crazy trials, and, or your favorite character in any book is like going through something crazy, and you think, if, if they would just have a moment to hear the author's ear and say, don't worry, I know the next four chapters are going to be really rough, but let me tell you how the end will come. Let me give you an example. See, we know from the perspective of history how this comes to fruition and how God honors Joseph. But in that moment, it was not clear. In that moment, Jacob thinks, are you really going to, are we going to bow down to you? And Joseph is just like, I don't know, but you better get ready because this is going to happen. I don't know. He's just excited about it. So here's where we go from here. In the making, Joseph is being molded, but he was shaped as someone who was loved, which is great. Favored, which is good, but was the favorite and experienced favoritism, which created bitterness, which was bad. So what happens when you have, uh, and again, I'm going to very much generalize this, but 
when you have shaping and molding of a piece of pottery, then you have to put it, once it's in the right shape, then you put it into a kiln. And in the kiln is where the heat comes in order to make it solid. And so sometimes there's the making phase when we're in the potter's hand. But then if you're following along in your notes, we have the baking phase, which is when we're in the fiery kiln. When we're in the midst of that, and, and it's God working through us and holding us together, but it feels like trial. It feels like he's forsaken us. It feels like he's thrown us into the fires and the difficulties and the trials. But what he's doing is making sure that how he's made the pottery is able to stay. And for us, there's character qualities where he's throwing on the wheel and he's molding us. He's like, I got to start over. We got to keep working. But then once he's molded and shaped us, he puts us in positions to be solidified and to be stronger in order to face the purpose that he has for us. And so we go into the kiln and it's fiery and we don't like it, but it's all part of the process. In our notes, we see that some of our negative experiences are due to painful betrayal and unfair attacks. This is something that God used to shape and to mold and to, and to strengthen Joseph for what he had in store for him. But in the time, it just feels like an awful, unfair trial, these painful negative experiences. The first one, I'm not going to be able to read the whole story, but in Genesis 37, so let's stay here for a couple moments on the slide. Genesis 37, the painful betrayal is when Joseph goes and Jacob tells him to go find his brothers. He finds them. He, as he's looking, he's like, oh, he's over at Dothan. They all go there, and they see him from afar. And they say, there goes Joseph. Let's take him and let's kill him. The bitterness has been raging. Joseph's 17 years old at this point, and so his brothers are, have, have had 17 years of not only seeing them as the, him as the favored one, but realizing that they are not the favored one, and that bitterness and that anger and that frustration, because they're doing the hard work, and Joseph shows up in a technicolor dream coat, and all of a sudden, they, he gets all the credit while they do all the work. And so all of a sudden, they say, let's kill him then we could be favored. Then we could be loved. Maybe we could experience the love of the Father. And side note, that's separate from the point, but isn't it beautiful to know that you, as brothers and sisters in Christ, do not need to compete with other brothers and sisters in Christ to experience the Father's love. You don't need to look and say, well, I don't want that person to, who's loved by God to experience love because then it takes away love from me. Friends, God's love is so infinite. It multiplies every time. Just like if you've had more than one child, you learn the beauty of thinking, I don't know how I could love another child as much as I love my first. And then you have a second or a third or however many you have. And you realize that it's not that 100% of your love for your child gets split and it's 50-50. Or in the Joseph's case, it's eight and a quarter percent for all 12 brothers. You realize that he expands that love. So you can love all your kids 100%. It doesn't decrease, it only increases. But we see that there's the painful betrayal that takes place because they decide not to kill him. Judah says, what are we going to gain if we kill him? We can make money off of him. And so they sell him to some Midianites that are heading out. And so they're a caravan of, of Ishmaelites, excuse me, and they're carrying him out. And then they hide him in a cistern. They sell him into slavery. And then he ends up being sold to Potiphar, um, who is you know, a landowner there in the area. We jump up, and so that's the painful betrayal that his brothers wanted him dead sold him to slavery, and then took the technicolor dream coat, covered it in blood, and told Jacob, the father, that their son, his beloved son, had died. Now, 
then there's the unfair tax in Genesis 39. Genesis 39, he's working at Potiphar's house and he has incredible abilities and skills. He's able to help run a house. He's able to be in char- put in charge and Potiphar knows he can entrust him with so many different things of the running of the household. And then we see that Potiphar's wife is attracted to Joseph and tries to seduce him. And Joseph with integrity says, no, no, the only thing, the only thing that is withheld from me in this household is you, far be it from me, to fall into this. And one time she corners him inside the house and he runs. He actually flees from temptation, which is what we read in the New Testament to do. He flees from temptation. She grabs him by the cloak, takes the cloak with him, and then he, she accuses him unfairly of trying to hurt her, to rape her, and to do these awful things. So then he gets thrown into prison when all he was trying to do was live with integrity. He was, what, unfairly attacked of his character and experienced an unfair punishment for something he did not do. Could you imagine being like Joseph and thinking, Lord, I remember the dreams you told me. I remember you telling me that I was going to, you know, my my brothers were going to bow down to me, which felt great. And then I remember you said that my mom and dad and brothers will bow down to me. And I didn't know what it meant, but I certainly didn't think it meant this. God, if you're shaping and molding me, why are you allowing me to go through the fire? We see the fire as punitive. God uses the fire as formative. We see that it is the fire, Madame Guyon says it this way, it is the fire of suffering that brings forth the gold of godliness. That we are tested in the fire. We are put through the fire in order to see if we have a faith that is worth gold. Peter continues this. Now, in this context, Peter is talking about suffering for being a Christian, for being a Christ follower. But we can see it's suffering for doing the right thing. Just like Joseph suffered, gone to prison for doing the right thing and living with integrity. He says this, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Friends, I don't know what what suffering, what trial, what difficulty you're facing right now, but if, if we, myself included, if we could understand that there are fiery ordeals that happen, not because God is trying to punish you, but because he's trying to form you. That, that we expect, because we, we live in a culture and a time where comfort surrounds us so much, that difficulty and hardship we think is God punishing us. We think that it's something where we must have done something wrong because why would a good God take out all this anger on me? When there are just times when things are tough. We've been put in our balloon of comfort and, and on-demand culture to the point where hardship feels like an attack. And going through a fiery ordeal, yes, it's tough, but is it possible that God is not doing this to punish you, but to form you? To say, I want you to be strong because wet clay can't carry much weight. But a piece of pottery that has gone through the fire and has withstood it can be put to great use. The fiery kiln is not punitive. It can be used as formative. So we have the making shaped and formed. We have the baking in which we're put into the fiery kiln. And it's God strengthening us for what he has has for us. And then we have the one that is our least favorite. Because if we already didn't like 
the baking, we're not going to like this next one because this next one is a season or a stage of breaking. When we're no longer in the potter's hand, we're no longer in the fiery kiln, we are in pieces on the ground. We've been shattered, broken, confused, turned upside down. Everything we thought we knew about God, we wonder if we had it all right in the first place. And in this moment, we either run to God or we can run from him. And if we run to him, friends, what he can do with broken pieces who are willing to be made new is more beautiful than we can imagine. But I'm getting ahead of myself. We're in pieces on the ground. We jump ahead to Genesis chapter 40. But before we do, in our notes, we say this. When we're in our lowest moments, we see our dreams shattered and we feel abandoned by God and others. We feel our dreams shattered and we feel abandoned by God and others. Joseph, doing the right thing, gets thrown into prison, being wrongfully accused with an unfair attack and after a painful betrayal. He's in prison now, and in prison, guess what happens? The warden starts to see that this guy's got skills. This guy has abilities. He's able to run the prison, and the warden uh, respects him, and the warden entrusts him, and the prisoners respect him. So all of a sudden, again, he's being elevated in a place of leadership because of his skills and his abilities and the gifts that he has. He's elevated to a place of leadership. And so we jump into Genesis chapter 40, and as we get there, we recognize that there are two people, two other prisoners that end up having a dream that they share with Joseph, and he's able to interpret their dreams. He's able to tell them what's going to happen to them, and one of them finds out that, the cupbearer finds out that he has a dream that he's going to be able to go back into Pharaoh's service, that after three days he's going to go back into Pharaoh's service, and it's a happy dream. It's something that he's really excited about. We also see that there's a baker that he has a dream that crows are going to eat the, uh, the top of his head. And Joseph says, well, that means that you're going to die in three days. So one's a good dream and one's a not a good dream. But Joseph was able to interpret it. And when he interprets the dream to the, to the cupbearer, this is what he says. Genesis chapter 40. Let's go ahead and go to the next slide. Starting in verse 14. He says, here's what the dream means. You're going to be put back into Pharaoh's service after three days. But when all goes well with you, when these dreams that you've had come to fruition and you remember that I'm the one that told you about it, but when all goes well with you, remember me and show me kindness. Mention me to Pharaoh and get me out of this prison. I was forcibly carried off from the land of the Hebrews. And even here, I have done nothing to deserve being put in a dungeon. We see that he's in this place where my dreams are shattered. The least I could do is maybe help you with your dream. But I've got nothing. I don't know. I didn't do anything wrong. I've been through the fire. I've been through the trial. I've been in the kiln, and I don't know why God is doing this. And he says, since I've done nothing wrong, remember me. Just Remember me, when Pharaoh says, I've restored you to your position, that first time that you taste the cup to make sure it's not poison, because that's what a cupbearer would do, right? When he would taste the cup and then he would give it to the ruler. The first time you do this, can you just say, do you know, Pharaoh, that there was a man named Joseph who told me this was going to take place? And he was wrongfully accused, did nothing wrong, was carried off from his homeland, brought here, did great work at uh, the house he was at, got wrongfully accused, did great work in the prison, Show him kindness. 
I wouldn't be here if it weren't for him. And that's a beautiful thought, but yet, this is what happens. The story turns out. The cupbearer goes back to Pharaoh. And how does chapter, Genesis chapter 40 end? With verse 23 says this. The chief cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And in this moment, he's been abandoned by the one who said he would help. And he's probably feeling abandoned by God. It, 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 it's hard to think about how painful the idea of being forgotten by someone would be. And so Genesis chapter 41 shows us two years pass before the cupbearer remembers what Joseph has done. For two more years, Joseph is sitting in a prison, wrongfully accused, carted off from his land, forgotten by those that said they would help him, and feeling abandoned by God because his dreams are shattered. Having his family bow down to him, he can't even get out of prison that he didn't deserve. Rick Warren in Purpose Driven Life unpacks this idea for us. He says this, says, it is this last category, these painful experiences that God uses the most to prepare you for ministry. God never wastes a hurt. In fact, your greatest ministry will most likely come out of your greatest hurt. The way that God wants to use you will come from the painful experiences that we so often want to hide and sweep away. The way that God wants to work in your life is often to help others who've been through the same things that you've been in, that you've experienced, that you've struggled. When you could go back to someone and say, I don't have it all together, but I may be one or two steps ahead of you. Let me guide you through this dark pit. I don't have all the answers, but I can help guide you through the next step. Someone who's able to just come alongside and say, I've been where you've been. And I don't pretend to know everything that you're experiencing, but I've been enough of where you've been to know that God had a purpose for me, and I know God has a purpose for you. So there's an image. We've been talking about this pottery image. This idea that God shapes us. He puts us on the wheel. And, and as Connie's quotation mentioned earlier, he, she puts us, he puts us in the fire. We experience that he's the great craftsman, the great potter. And, and he molds us and he shapes us far better than that. And then he puts us in the kiln and we get solidified and stronger. But then what happens when the purpose for which we feel we've been made gets shattered and we feel like we're broken on the floor? And it, it reminds me of this picture here of just pottery shards that got smashed and they're just all broken. This was once a beautiful piece of pottery that was, in full, that was uh, fully intact. And yet, there came a time when it broke. And this is where some of you are today. You felt like, God, I, you had a purpose for me. You told me what you had for me. But I just feel shattered on the floor. I feel like the dreams you told me about just are so far from even having a glimpse of being reality. I feel like I'm in a prison, a prison of the circumstances, the context, the difficulties, the trials, the hurts, the habits, the hangups, whatever it is I'm feeling right now. God, I feel like you've shattered my dreams and I feel like you've abandoned me. Now, did God abandon Joseph in the prison? No. But did Joseph feel abandoned by God and by others in the prison. I'm sure he did. 
Has God abandoned you in your trials and in your brokenness today? No. But have you felt abandoned by God and others? I'm sure you have. And that's why, friends, this last portion of our sermon is so important. It's not just about making. It's not just about baking. It's not just about breaking. But it's about that time when we experience the remaking of God and we are put back in the potter's hand again. When he brings us back and he shows us that there was a reason and a plan and a hope despite the brokenness. That no matter how shattered we may feel, we are never too far gone for God to be able to not do his work in us. The remaking is when we are in the potter's hand again. In your notes, follow along. It says this, when we least expect it, God begins to remake us by reiterating our calling and allowing our painful experiences to bless others. When we least expect it, when we've been, Joseph's been in prison for two years now, after already suffering, after already not doing anything wrong, by the time we catch up to his story in Genesis chapter 42, because, or 41, excuse me, that's when the cupbearer says, oh my goodness, Pharaoh, I've, he, Pharaoh had a dream, and the cupbearer says, today I am reminded of how much of a mistake I've made. There was someone who helped me two years ago. I could bring him in, and I'm sure he can interpret your dream. He brings him in. Pharaoh explains the dream to him about how there would be seven full cows, and there will be seven skinny cows, and the seven skinny cows will devour the full cows. And Joseph says, this is what it means. You're going to have seven years of plenty in the land of Egypt. And then you're going to have seven years of famine. And the famine's going to be so bad that it's going to supersede what happened with the plenty. So what you ought to do, Pharaoh, is to be able to put someone in charge in order to make sure that during that season of feast and blessing and overabundance, you store all those things away so that when the time of famine comes, not only will Egypt have enough stores for their survival, but other people and other countries will come to you in order to buy grain from you and it will expand your wealth. And Pharaoh says, who would be a better person than you, Joseph? Why? Well, Pharaoh doesn't know the whole story. Pharaoh, Joseph probably didn't write out his resume, but what did he do? He was put in Potiphar's house and was able to raise up and lead a household through his skills and his abilities. He gets thrown into prison. What happens? He gets over a, a larger group, a prison, not just a household, but a prison with a warden and prisoners and was raised up because of his skills and abilities in order to be put in charge there. And God was preparing him and solidifying and strengthening him in the trials in order to experience the calling. That God put Joseph in a place that Pharaoh says, Joseph, you are the one that I want to put in charge. Do what you've said during the seven years of feast and extra abundance. Save it all. And then during the years of famine, we'll be able to survive. Joseph does this. And we see in Genesis 42 and 40 through 45, the brothers end up coming because the, 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 where Jacob was in his family, they didn't have food. They go and they don't recognize Joseph, but they bow down before him. And the, the, the dream has been fulfilled in the least likely way that he never could have foreseen coming. And there's several things that go back and forth. And I, I can't go through all of 45 through 50, but 45, it talks about, Genesis 45 talks about how Joseph reveals himself and says, brothers, how is my father? How is Benjamin? Bring, bring them all here. Live in Goshen. I will take care of you. I will provide for you. And it's the start of the Israelites in Egypt. 
and they prosper and they grow to the point where years, hundreds of years later, we see the story of Exodus. But before that, it all started because Joseph was in a season where he was remade. And there's this beautiful, beautiful couple of verses that I'd encourage, I, I haven't memorized it yet, I encourage all of us to try to memorize these because of the impact it can have if we can keep this perspective. Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 through 20. Because after, after Jacob died, the brothers go to Joseph and they say, Joseph, uh, dad told us not to be mean to us now that he's dead. Now, whether Joseph, Jacob actually said that or whether the brothers were just afraid that Joseph would show his malice towards his brothers after all these years, it's unclear. But here's what happens, that Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Friends, this is worth gold. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. What you intended to harm me, or some of the translations that you intended for evil, God intended for good. Now, I, in a room this size and people watching online, I don't know the evil or the harm you've experienced. And please do not, um, please do not mistake me as trying to gloss over your pain, any, any abuse, any struggle. I'm not trying to say, oh, that doesn't mean it. That is incredibly painful. And if you've had the opportunity to go to counseling and walk through that, or if you haven't yet, I encourage you to, to find healing through Christian counselors who can speak God's word into you. So I'm not dismissing the trial, okay? So please hear me. I'm not doing that. But what I'm saying is that God can use whatever was meant for harm in your life to be used for good. He can use you to come alongside someone who's experienced similar harm. And you could just say, I don't know where you've been, or I don't know your whole story, but I've been a part of where you've been. There is hope, a hope that can be an anchor that holds us within this veil, because God, he never lets go. He never lets go of us. Gene Getz, in his book, talks about this. He says, Joseph's response represents one of the most mature viewpoints expressed in all scripture. He combined a human perspective with a divine outlook on what happened. It's saying that God intended, used good out of what was intended for evil. We see this through Good Friday. We see that what the enemy intends for evil, the crucifixion of the only begotten son, God used for good because in the darkest moment all of history, Good Friday, out of that comes the brightest moment and the most hope-filled moment in all of history, which is the Resurrection Sunday. God is in the business of taking what is meant for harm and using it for good. He works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. The problem is that our definition of good is we think it's something that feels good or looks good or tastes good or seems good now. And we don't always see the bigger, grander vision. We're characters in a story that God is the author. And, and sometimes we say, God, can you tell me where this is going? Because the past four chapters, the past four months, the past four years, the past four decades have been awful. And he might say, I want to show you that what others have intended for harm in your life, I intend for good, for, the, for what is being done, the saving of many lives. That if Joseph wasn't tossed into slavery, if he wasn't tossed into a prison, if he didn't line up with that cupbearer, if he didn't enter, answer those dreams, if he didn't get brought before Pharaoh, the Egyptians would have died. God's people, his remnant, his covenant people would have died out of famine. 
And yet God used what was meant for harm and he used it for good. Gene Getz continues on. He says this. He says, but beyond it all, God had used Joseph's what? Experiences to accomplish his divine purposes. R.T. Kendall says this. He says, you could never have told Joseph in advance that his niche in life was to be the governor of Egypt. Who would have ever thought that? And yet, all that had gone on before in Joseph's life was God's preparation for this very position. All that's gone on in your life is because God has a purpose, and I don't know what that is yet. But he puts what others intend for harm, God can use for good, and he prepares us for the position he has us. And then lastly, Rick Warren says this. He says, if you really desire to be used by God, you must, this is under, uh, italicized if you can't tell, if you really desire to be used by God, you must understand a powerful truth. The very experiences that you have resented or regretted most in life, the ones you've wanted to hide and forget, are the experiences God wants to use to help others. They are your ministry. It's when we can see what it's like to have been broken, and we remember that, and then we see people who are on that same path or in that same struggle, have gone through that same life experience. And God says, don't, don't, don't hide how I've worked in your life. Don't hide how the brokenness has become beautiful in your life. Be willing to lean into that. Use your spiritual gifts and your heart and your abilities and your personality and orient those into experiences and help those who've experienced similar things to you. So as we, we'll close our sermon in just a couple of moments, but before we do, as we've been doing every week, is we're going to watch a story together. And this is of Rox, or Rox, Rex and Connie Kenimer. I combine them like they're celebrities. Um, so it's Rex and Connie Kenimer, and the story that she wrote the book, and the quotation I, I gave, she wrote that before the story that we're about to hear takes place. So that was previously written but what I want you to do is, is take the next few minutes to be able to turn your attention to the screens to see how God has used an incredibly painful experience in the Kenimer's life in order to bless and to serve others. Will you turn your attention to the screens with me? Hi, we're Rex and Connie Kenimer. Um, we've been a part of Pomerado since 1993 uh, when Todd and I came together. And uh, Connie joined us three years later after a temporary assignment at... Uh, Green Valley Church. So we've been there uh, enjoying the fellowship and being part of the worship um, since that time. Experiences are the thing that blow holes in your three to five year plan. <laughs> and uh, that's kind of what happened to us when Todd was up and out of high school. Um, he had a real traumatic loss of a close friend in a car wreck and that triggered some challenges for his faith and his mental health. And ultimately, um, it put him in a place of uh, having issues with bipolar disorder, which was not new to my family. Um, so he was diagnosed while he was in a band in Seattle with his car his uh, coffee pouring buddies and um, a year after he was diagnosed um, he took his life uh, because he couldn't get out of his pain. It really did challenge our faith um, and I wrote a, an essay called The House That 
faith built. And that was exactly where we were because I didn't know if I could trust God anymore um, because he's the only one that could have prevented Todd's death and he didn't. So that was um, a, a discovery that I needed to be on because uh, I knew God hadn't failed us. I just didn't know why he didn't prevent Todd's death. I had a similar challenge. Um, I felt that way as well. And I was angry with God, um, even while I was responsible for leading worship at Pomerado. And it took me seven months to kind of break through and begin to see that uh, the God I know from my childhood is not sitting on his hands. He's never in a place of doing nothing. So I had to come to grips with that reality that God was not in any way absent from Todd's uh, trouble and ours. There were many uh, divine appointments of, that God used to help us from the very beginning of our loss and many of them are part of Pomerado. Many of you are here in this room now. And that's been 17 years back in 2005. So we have been cared for and loved back into health by this church, by our missions ministry and many others. And um, so God used all kinds of people to encourage us. Some of them are in the uh, mental health field and suicide prevention, and some of them are believers in Christ, and others just have various kinds of faith or no particular faith. And we were blessed to be able to work with all kinds of people. And the flip side of that is God expected us to, to work with all kinds of people. And uh, we formed a nonprofit around that idea. And uh, in Todd's memory, that's called Community Alliance for Healthy Minds. And that took shape because of all the people that surrounded us in the beginning, and including the volunteer force that we used from this church um, to carry on the forums that we did each year up until COVID time, so. We've seen him use our experience with Todd's suicide death um, abundantly over and over again. In fact, even now, we have a suicide survivor that lives upstairs in our house. So um, it never ceases to be used. I remember hearing uh, Rex and Connie share previously when she said, uh, Connie had mentioned that um, Todd's suicide death that launched them into an area of ministry that they never expected or even maybe planned or hoped to want to be a part of, of comforting those who have experienced family members' suicide. But as we see, God uses 
these broken pieces. So they had their time of trial. They, they still grieve and they still struggle, but they went through that seven-month period and then they could see how God could use the most difficult experience, the most painful experience to bless others and to have an impact. So again, maybe some of you still feel like you're kind of this broken, broken shards of pottery or dreams are shattered. You feel abandoned by God. You're not quite sure what's, uh, what's going on and where you're at. And so what I want to do is close with this image or close with this idea. Um, that's, it's a Japanese art form called kintsugi. And what kintsugi does is it takes broken pieces of pottery. And kintsugi means golden joinery or, or golden uh, combining things together. Here's someone explaining the philosophy behind it. It says this, the philosophy behind kintsugi is to value the brokenness and repair as part of the object's history rather than seeing it as something to disguise. In contrast to Western philosophy, which strives for perfection and looks to hide brokenness, Kintsugi acknowledges the brokenness and then pieces it back together into something beautiful. So those same shards that you just saw, we go to the next picture, it, they show like how they can be remade. This golden joinery, this fact that all these shards that were right here are able to be recast in the hands of the potter. That's something broken and hard and experiences that are beyond painful. God can bring those back together and he can make wholeness out of brokenness. He can bring hope out of despair and he can use what was intended for evil to be used for good, for the saving of many lives. So friends, I don't know which season, which stage, which, however you want to describe it, whether you're in the making stage, baking, breaking, or whether you're being remade right now. I know that God is not done with you. If you are shattered on the floor, God is not done with you. And he is continuing to work you. You are masterpieces in progress. You are on that journey that none of us are fully fully back to how we've been made, or we're not fully there yet, but we know that he will carry on to completion what he's designed us for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person who's part of our service this morning. I pray that you would encourage each and every one of us, Lord, that no matter where we are in this process, no matter what we're feeling, no matter how this lands to us, God, I pray that um, if someone is, is, wounding, is wounded right now, I pray, Lord, that in moments where maybe the, the words of the sermon seem harsh, that you would soften those edges so that they would hear your Holy Spirit comforting them. For those of us who might be in difficult times, may you use, Holy Spirit, your words to strengthen us, to know that the fiery trials don't have to be the end of our story, but can strengthen us for the next part of our story. Lord, that if we are broken and shattered on the floor, God, may we have faith that you are a God who can bring back the broken pieces and create something more beautiful because of our brokenness and because of the pain than ever could have been on its own. Lord, may you meet us here, and I pray that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each of us throughout this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast. We want to be a church where people are changed by God to change the world. If you want to partner with us in this way, you can start by doing these two things. The first, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do that by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening so you can stay connected with us and we can broaden our reach. And the second, and this might be the most important thing you do, share this message with someone you know. And as always, remember you are prayed for, 
cared for, and loved. See you next time.